I don't know if you've ever heard of one, but it's called the dump button. And it was found on the radio control board that I ran while I was in college. See, I served as the production manager for our small radio station at Houghton College. And as such, I was responsible for everything that went over the air. In addition to receiving music, approving it, and cycling music through our broadcast schedule, I spent a considerable amount of time as the live voice of WJSL 90.3 FM. You didn't know I was a radio celebrity, did you? Truth be told, not many people did or know that even when I was on the air. I know that because whenever I would hold a contest, you know, one of those where you would give, a, give something away and I'd ask for the seventh caller, someone would call and I'd tell them to try calling back again and they'd call, it was this, and they'd be my second caller. Sometimes they would be seven callers in a row. So I don't think many people were actually listening to me. But it was a good experience and I enjoyed at least thinking that someone was out there. The reason I bring it up is because the control board that we had in the station in the early 90s had one of these buttons. It's called a dump button. And what that button did was muted content that had just been aired before it hit the live radio waves. It was there in case one of those callers um, used profanity. And I didn't want that profanity to reach the ears of the listeners. I could hit that button and stop that undesirable content from ever reaching the ears of the listeners. There was just enough of a delay, just a few seconds between what was broadcast and when it was heard that the message could be intercepted midstream and deleted. A dump button. How many of you wish you had a dump button on your person? I think every one of our hands should go up. Uh, maybe on your wrist, on one of your smart watches, or, or in your pocket somewhere, so that when you said something that you immediately regretted, you could take it back. You could retract it. You know what I mean. A word spoken to your spouse that you instantly know you shouldn't have said. An angry word to your child that you wish you could erase. An unkind word to a neighbor, an employee, a colleague, or maybe even just a total stranger. I'm certain every one of us could use a dump button. And I'm sure every one of us probably could have used it at least once this week. But alas, no such buttons exist. Once words leave our lips, they are irretractable. We can apologize for them, but the damage has already been done. There's no taking them back. Let me illustrate what I mean. I need a volunteer, preferably a young person. Who'd like to volunteer to come up here? You don't have to do much talking. You want to come up? Come on up. Come right on up here. Now tell us your name. Heather. Heather, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you this toothpaste, and I want you to, well, I'll let you open, I'll open the top for you. I want you to squeeze every last drop of that toothpaste out onto that plate. Now, while, while Heather squeezes the toothpaste out, I want you to think about the number of words that you say in a given day. I once read that the average person says about enough words in one day to fill a 50-page book. Some of you are quiet people, and you say, I haven't filled a book in the last week. But I know some of you, and I'm pretty sure you filled a book before you left the house this morning. The truth is, we are communicative people. God made us that way. In Genesis chapter 1, God spoke creation into existence using words, and God created us in his image to speak. We refer to the Bible as what? The word of God. Jesus is referred to in John chapter 1 as the word that was made flesh. Words are important to God, and they must be important to us as well. 
Did you get it all out? Good. Now, I've got some very simple instructions for you as well. What I want you to do is I want you to put the toothpaste back in the tube for me. What's wrong? Do you think you can get it back in? Why not? You don't have to make a mess. It's okay. Why do you think it won't go back in? There you go. It's pretty tough once you get the toothpaste out to get it back in the tube again, right? Well, one other question for you. If I had asked you to squeeze that toothpaste out this morning, and you started to squeeze it onto the plate, and shampoo came out instead of toothpaste, what would you have thought? Would you have been surprised? Why? Yeah, because what does it say? It says toothpaste, right? So you expect toothpaste to come out of a toothpaste tube, right? Very good. Now, I've got a, a prize for you. Participation prize, your own tube of toothpaste. So, thank you. Good. Give Heather a hand, would you? Here's the point, and I think you've probably already grasped it this morning by the toothpaste. Once words are put out there, they just can't be taken back. And we're going to see that today in our scripture text. We're going to see that words are powerful, and we're going to discover that not only are they powerful, but they tell a lot about the person that speaks them. They tell us about what's inside the person's heart. The apostle James understood this lesson very well. In the passage of scripture we'll read today, we learn of the power of words, and we pick up on a central theme, and that is that your words always reveal the condition of your heart. We're going to return to that theme, but I want you to to keep that in mind as we work through the text this morning. Your words always reveal the condition of your heart. Before we open the text, let me do a little bit of review. I know it's summer and some of you have been traveling. Some of you may be here for the first time. We are about halfway through our series in the book of James this morning. James is is a, a book that's believed to have been written by Jesus' own brother, who wasn't a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive. But, but converted to that faith and became a leader in the church after Jesus' death and his resurrection. It's a, it's a book that was written to churches, to Christians in the early first century that had been dispersed because of persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 7 and then in Acts chapter 8 where they are dispersed. They leave Jerusalem and scatter to the regions of Judea and Samaria. James challenges these Christians who are faced with trials and tribulation and struggles to embrace those trials because God works through trials to produce in us the righteousness he desires and to accomplish his will in the world around us. James then challenges these Christians, as we've seen over the past few weeks, regarding some behaviors which can get in the way of the redeeming work that God wants to do through our trials. He challenges them, first of all, not to give in to human anger, which doesn't produce the righteousness of God, he says. He tells them they need to be obedient to the word, to be doers of the word and not just hearers. He also addresses a temptation to show partiality and preferential treatment to those who are wealthy or who might be able to make it better for them in life. And finally, we studied last week about the crux of James' argument in this letter, his main thesis, if you will, namely that faith without works is dead, that God talk without God walk is a sham. 
So as James continues then in this teaching to these young Christians about living out their faith, he deals with yet another major roadblock to the work that God desires to accomplish in us. And unlike the sin of favoritism, it's pretty difficult to fly under the radar of the conviction of the Holy Spirit with regards to this, po- this passage. It's impossible to truly listen to James chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and not come away with your heart pricked. Because as James is going to tell us, we all stumble in many ways. We all deal with this particular issue. So let's open our Bibles together, and we're going to read James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading to you from the English Standard Version. Not many of you, James writes, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading from his holy word. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to break these verses down into three bite-sized pieces, if you will, to understand James' message. We're going to look at a very specific warning in the opening couple of verses, and then two more general principles. And so if you're following along in your outlines, the first thing we see is a warning to aspiring teachers. The term teachers here occurs some 58 times in the New Testament, 41 of which in the New Testament are used to refer to Jesus Christ himself. The term teacher is directly connected to the term disciple, and it's a title of respect both in Judaism as well as in the early church. In the church, teachers had a role. Their role was to, was to instruct progressively in the things of God. And while teachers are singled out as a unique office in the church, in passages like 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and Ephesians 4, 11, sometimes in the New Testament, teachers didn't hold an official office, but they were endowed with a gift from God and they, they taught in unofficial capacities. 
So in other words, James isn't just speaking to the appointed leaders of the church, teachers chosen by the church. He's, he's speaking to the everyday church member who might take on a teaching role. I, I think of those who, who step up and say, yeah, I'll be a vacation Bible school teacher, or, or I'll help with, with children's church. To these Christians who James endearingly calls my brothers, he writes that not many of them should endeavor to become teachers. Now, why would you want to scare people off from signing up to help out as a teacher? Why would you want to scare them off from signing up to help out with children's church or Sunday school or youth group or vacation Bible school? What church doesn't need more teachers? Well, here's why James writes this. Because the role of a teacher in that day and age was a highly respected one. It was a role with social status attached to it. And that status led people to, to conduct themselves in such a way that there were rivalries among them as they endeavored to try to secure followers. See, apparently in the early church, people were stepping up to teach, but they were doing so for the wrong reasons. And to such a church, James says, the role of teacher is not something you should aspire to. Why? Well, James gives a couple of reasons. First, because teachers will face stricter judgment. I have to wonder if, as James penned these words, the words of his brother in Matthew 12, 36 didn't come back to him when Jesus said, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. While we all speak many words in a day, teachers speak even more. I will speak probably as many words in this short message today, or long message, depending on your vantage point, um, than some of you may speak the entire day. And so teachers, we, we, we have a lot more, we speak many more words. And, and if even a fraction of the average person's words are careless, how many more words might be careless spoken by a teacher? So teachers are expected to handle the word of God faithfully and to live by that word, to be not only hearers, but doers of that word. God expects more from those of us who teach and holds us accountable for what we teach. But it's not just that we're held accountable because we speak more words. We're held to a stricter accountability, says James. That ought to fill anyone who steps into the role of a teacher with a holy sense of awe and an increased sense of fear of the Lord. Teaching is not something that we ought to enter into lightly. Here's the second reason not many should aspire to teacher, because the tongue is the greatest culprit of sin. I want you to think about your sins from the past few days for a minute. Go ahead. Allow your mind to go there. Where did you stumble? There were undoubtedly attitudes and thoughts that were sinful, but I would venture a guess that most of the trouble that you found yourself in involved words that were spoken. Just imagine that you had not spoken any unkind or any unthoughtful words this week and instead had only spoken words that were seasoned with grace and love. How different would your life have been? What James is going to show us as we continue in this passage is that the tongue is the most vilest most vile of offenders. It is our greatest source of trouble. It wreaks havoc like nothing else in our lives can do. So says James, not many of you should aspire to this role of teaching because teachers use words and a lot of words at that and as such are more strictly held accountable and they are more likely to fall. Are you still with me? Preacher, you say you 
convinced me. I was thinking about volunteering to teach, but I'm going to take my name off the table. I'll serve as a greeter or as a nursery worker instead. Well, in case you think you're off the hook, by doing that, James zooms the camera lens out, as it were, and instead of just focusing on teachers now, provides counsel that is applicable to teachers and non-teachers alike. If you're following along in your outline, what we see next is the influence of the tongue. The influence of the tongue. To sum up what James says here, if you can control what you say, you can control what you do. The Proverbs put it this way in chapter 21, verse 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. While we all sin in many ways, as James says in verse 2, if we were able to control the tongue, we could control every thought and action. For any man who doesn't stumble in what he says, writes James, is also able to bridle his whole body. While James is still addressing those who aspire to be teachers, the application can be much broader than just those who aspire to teachers. We all, James writes, including himself, stumble in many ways. Teachers and non-teachers alike stumble. They lose their footing. They trip. They step off the straight path of righteousness. We stumble in many ways, and if we could just control our tongues, we could stay on that path. Why? Because the tongue is so influential. And anyone who can perfectly control the tongue can control their actions as well. Now, James, as you've already seen in our study, loves to illustrate his points with pictures, and so he uses them here again in this passage. He talks about the bit in the mouth of a horse and the rudder of a ship. Now, we're not going to spend much time on those pictures because I think you easily get the point. Both images emphasize the size of the instrument in comparison to the size of the accomplishment. The bit and the rudder. A bit steers a horse and a rudder a ship. So too does the tongue, while small and physically weak in comparison to every other part of our bodies, influence our entire self. That's what he writes in verse 5 after giving these two illustrations when he says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, before we move on to our, our third and final point, let me make an important observation. The tongue does not just accomplish evil. We spend a lot of time addressing, rightfully so, the evils of the tongue, which we'll talk about in a moment. But how often do we forget to talk about the fact that as God's creation created in his image, we were given the ability to communicate, and our communications ought to resemble the communications of God to others. When teachers faithfully handle the word of God, their speech is used by God to produce righteous results. That's my prayer every week that I come to you. I come to you in fear and trembling because this is an enormous responsibility. Breaking the bread of life with you, opening the inspired word of God and communicating its truth, they're huge responsibilities. And I want to be faithful more than anything else. And I'm so grateful that God chooses to use the foolishness of preaching to do his work. And my prayer, and my prayer for the pastor that we will call, is that we will never get in the way of God communicating with you, either through what we say or what we do. But you don't have to be a teacher to be used constructively. 
the application is so much wider. If you're within the sound of my voice today and you're able to communicate through words, spoken or written, you could be mute and this text still applies to you. You have a responsibility to use words for God's glory and the good of others. And oh, by the way, that means this passage applies to the words we use on social media as well as those we audibly speak. Words, whether spoken or written, can be used to build others up or tear them down, to glorify God or glorify Satan. Let me, let me point your attention to a few scripture texts where we learn this. Proverbs 18.21 reminds us that the tongue has the power of death and life. Ephesians 4.29 instructs us to let only such talk that is good for building up come from our mouths. If the, Colossians 4 verse 6 says to let your speech always be gracious. Proverbs 15, 1 and 2 to provide a soft answer and commend knowledge. And Proverbs 16, 24 to offer gracious words that give sweetness to the soul and health to the body. See, my friends, when we use our tongues constructively, when our conversations with our neighbors are laced with grace and kindness, when our communications at work are positive and uplifting and genuinely concerned about the well-being of our coworkers, when we choose words that bring out the best in our spouses and in our, the hearts of our children, friends, when we use our tongues in these ways, our tongues can accomplish great things for God. And here's what I find. When I speak a kind word to my spouse instead of something rude, what follows is generally a kind action. When I choose to build my children up with encouragement rather than tear them down and nitpick them for little things, what follows are loving and supportive deeds. Why? Because my tongue leads the way. And the converse is true. If I lead with harsh words, I'll most certainly follow through with harsh actions. Why? Because the tongue is influential. It has the power of life and death. And if you can control it, you can control the rest of your life. But let's be real with ourselves for a moment. As much as we know we ought to control our tongues, and if we could only do so, things would be so much different, we also know how unsuccessful we are at doing so. We know that while our tongues can be used for good, too often we employ them for evil, which is where James is going to go and camp out for the rest of this passage. As you, as you continue on in your outline, you're going to see the first thing there is the dangers of the tongue. The dangers of the tongue. And James lists some of them. First, he says, the tongue, it spreads evil. Fond of imagery, he adopts that of a fire to portray the damage the tongue can do. I don't know how many of you have ever seen the damage of a fire up close and personal, but my family has. In 2006, I was pastoring a country church in a small town in upstate New York. It was a church which was over a hundred years old, and it only seated around a hundred people at capacity, but we were packing in a hundred to a hundred and twenty every Sunday. College students from the college up the road were sometimes sitting in the floor in order to attend, and we had begun having conversations about what we were going to do because we'd run out of space. On one cool October evening, I was in the park in front of the parsonage visiting with a friend when I heard my wife scream. It was a weird scream. Not as if she were yelling at the kids, but the kind that made me think something might have been wrong. I told my friend I'd better go and make sure everything was okay, and as I began to cross the park back toward our parsonage, I saw the window air conditioner in our second-story bedroom blow out in flames. Thankfully, we got the family all out of the house safely, 
but the house didn't fare so well. As a result of the heat, the smoke, and the water, we lost almost everything we owned. And what's more, the damage to the interior was so bad that it would either need to be completely gutted and rebuilt or torn down altogether. In the weeks and the months that followed, that church had an important decision to make. Many in the church saw this as an opportunity. You see, the parsonage sat right next to the church. And if they tore it down and they built elsewhere, they could add on to the church. Or at the very least, build a parking lot, which we desperately needed. But there were those in the church who thought that the house and the church together on the village's park were too important to the historical view of the community. And what resulted were arguments and tension that spread through that church like wildfire. Whether to tear the church down to make room for growth, or the house down to make room for growth, or to rebuild it. The gossip and the hurtful words that were exchanged did such damage that that church was never again the same. They ended up preserving that historical parsonage, rebuilding it. But something happened that changed that church during that firestorm. And I just learned a couple of months ago that they have now closed their doors. It's a sad, sad commentary on the power of words and the way in which they can spread like a wicked fire that destroys everything in its path. Which is exactly what James says in the second part of verse 5. He says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. We know this truth to be evident in the body of Christ. Well, gossip and unkind words led to the eventual closure of that little church that I told you about. Let me be real with you for a moment, Calvary Hills. In the middle of a pastoral transition, there's a temptation, dare I say a proclivity, to allow tension and unkindness to creep into the teams, committees, classes, and groups in the church in the form of gossip. There are sometimes those who aspire for positions of leadership or to be teachers who see this vacuum as an opportunity to exert themselves and gain power and status when they can. Calvary Hills, let's not be that church. May our words to each other be gracious and filled with kindness and love. Let's build each other up. Let's maintain the unity of the spirit that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's remain focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's remain committed to boldly proclaiming Christ and representing him in this world. And let's be sure not to allow the evil of the tongue to destroy what God has done here. Let's not allow Satan to get a foothold in this church as we look forward to God's future for us as a king outpost here in northwest san antonio but just as this truth is evident in the church it's also evident in our personal lives i don't think i have to tell you what the spread of evil by the tongue can do in your life you and i both know how devastating words can be if you spread gossip people will not trust you if you speak with sarcasm and insults, people will not follow you. If you are unkind and hurtful, people will not want to be around you. Like a raging fire, the tongue can quickly ravage a church as well as an individual's life. And what's more, James says, did you catch this? 
the tongue, that fire is ignited by hell itself. Now, if you weren't happy with James last week when he compared our faith with the faith of demons in last week's passage, you're certainly not going to like this. James says speech that dishonors God and others is inspired by hell itself, the source of yours and mine, of our unkind, cutting, harsh words is none other than the great adversary, Satan. Christian, listen to that. When you open your mouth, when I open my mouth, and we let loose on someone else, when we tear someone down, when we respond unkindly at best and hatefully at worst, those words are inspired by none other than Satan himself. That means when we speak in those ways, we're allowing ourselves to be used for Satan's purposes. That ought to stop us in our tracks. I dare you to keep that in mind the next time you get ready to say something that is impure or unkind. So the tongue, James says, is dangerous because it spreads evil. But there's another reason the tongue is dangerous. According to James, it's dangerous because it is impossible to tame. In verses 7 to 8, James observes that beasts, birds, reptiles, and creatures can be tamed, but the tongue, so much smaller and less powerful than these creatures, cannot be tamed. Why? Because it's a restless evil. James says, even though we can bring it under some measure of control, it's always prone to further evil. It's always restless. So we need to be continually watchful, to remain diligent over our tongues, recognizing that we'll never be able to tame them completely. James continues, it's also impossible to tame the tongue because it's full of deadly poison. The word for poison here is the one that is, same word that is used for the venom that is ejected from the fangs of a serpent. Like that poison, our words can be deadly. They can cause pain like that inflicted by the bite of a poisonous snake. So the tongue is dangerous because it spreads evil and is impossible to tame. And finally, it makes us liable to judgment. As we look at the passage, the word judgment isn't actually mentioned in these last verses, but it's the unspoken implication that's still being drawn out and explained. In verses 9 to 12, James draws out the contradictory nature of faith and evil words. Now remember, if you were with us last week, James insists that faith, saving faith has to be evidenced by the way we live, and how we live depicts what we believe. And so in these verses, he continues with that train of thought. How you and I speak reveals what's inside our hearts. God, the Father, who sees and knows the heart, judges accordingly. You cannot fool God. And in a similar way, your words do not lie about you. To put it another way, you are what you say. If you praise God but you curse your neighbor... Your praise is ineffective, but even more, it's inauthentic. It can't be real, James argues. If you're a Christian, your words will reflect it. Like a spring that doesn't produce fresh and salt water simultaneously. Like a fig tree that doesn't produce olives. Like a grapevine that can't produce figs. And like a salt pond that can't yield fresh water. So too a Christian will not make, James says, a practice of unchristian speech. The practice of such speech is evidence of a superficial rather than a saving faith and points to someone who is in danger of hell. That's a terrifying thought. 
But it's reinforced by Jesus' words in Matthew 12, verses 33 through 37, when he speaks of a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Those trees read people who bear bad fruit, even though they cry out, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Those people will be cut down and sent away as imposters. The message is clear. The tongue makes us liable to judgment. As we began this morning, I told you that it would be hard to fly under the radar of conviction because this is a passage that applies to every one of us because we all stumble in many ways. And whether you are a teacher or not, the reality remains the same. Your words reveal, they always reveal the condition of your heart. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, but before we do that, I want to ask you to do some self-examination. What do your words say about you? What do they reveal about your heart? Preacher, you say, this has been real encouraging. Well, hear these words. We do not need to be afraid to look in the mirror that is James chapter 3. God puts this mirror in front of us because he loves us. And he wants to deliver us from the destructiveness of the sinful behaviors we surrender to by the use of our tongues. And the place to start is by owning your sinfulness and your helplessness. You see, there is a solution here. James says no man can tame the tongue, and he's right, but Jesus Christ can. The hope for you and I is not in some moralistic approach. It's not in behaving better. It is only in Jesus. The solution to the struggle with words is found in Jesus, the Word. He came and He lived perfectly. In fact, His perfection is demonstrated by His talk. Never was there deceit found in His mouth. Never did He utter a threat. Everything He said was perfect in every way. And by going to the cross as the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus suffered and died so that you and I can say, I need your help. I need your forgiveness. I have a tongue problem which reveals a heart problem. Listen, my friends, you can only be in one of two places today. You can minimize and justify your words, or you can look in the mirror of God's word and fall down helpless. There is no in-between. But if you'll fall down helpless, he will rescue you. And he'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He can tame this little member that has such power because his grace is sufficient. He can forgive you when you stumble. He can sanctify you and save you to the uttermost. He can hold you fast until your eventual glorification, all the while growing you in righteousness because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. He can do for you and I what we cannot do for ourselves. He can tame our tongues. He can redeem our tongues. And he can use our tongues for his glory.